Welcome to the third episode of Filtered the Podcast. My name is Phil Dye. I'm based in uh, Thoreau near Sydney, near Wollongong in Australia. And this episode is on the disease of diversity. We've been hearing about diversity for about the last 10 years and how wonderful it is. And initially, yes, it all sounded very, very fine. But Um, Over the last couple of years, the word has been hijacked, and it's been hijacked by extremists who take it to such a level that it creates an inequity. It creates a degree of unfairness. Forrest Gump, when he said, stupid is as stupid does, he was saying that while people aren't essentially stupid, They should be judged by their actions, not by their identity. But in our current craze of diversity, we tend to be judging people by their identity, by who they are and who they identify as. This means that a job seeker can be advantaged by who they are and who they identify as, not by what they've done and on the merit they may have. We give them an advantage. And that is simply not fair. So uh, for this episode, I interview Colleen Harkin. Colleen is the National Manager of Class Action Programs for the Institute of Public Affairs. She's also a research fellow at the Institute and is a very clear thinker and a straight talker. Now, It is true that on the diversity issue, many people are unwilling to speak out and say their mind. If they disagree with diversity, they can be called a, I don't know, a homophobe, a transphobe, a racist, I don't know, all sorts of names. Um, And it's not true. They're simply saying that this isn't fair. It's nothing against the individuals. But Colleen is a straight talker, and I first asked her about her history and her role at the Institute of Public Affairs. So I've got a bit of an eclectic background, really. Um, My initial training was in education. I have a master's degree, and I worked in classrooms, and I was an education consultant. Um, And I moved out of that into IT, had my own small business, excuse me, and uh, I've been a a political staffer, I now, yeah, I've had my own business. I've sort of had this sort of eclectic scenario, but ironically, what's where I've ended up now is in a role that, you know, sort of puts all of those pieces of a jigsaw together. Colleen, the word diversity has a wonderful uh, feel-good sort of ring to it, but what does diversity really mean in modern society? Yeah, it does have a lovely ring to it, doesn't it? Um, but diversity today sort of <clears throat> talks about the difference in your characteristics, such as you know race, gender, your ethnicity, and it, and it's a divisive concept rather than than a unifying one. Um, you know, it diminishes a person's individuality. Uh, you know, we're all individuals. We've got our own opinions based on who we are and what our backgrounds have been, and you know, not what we look like. So, you know, diversity is important, but, but 
you know, it needs to be diversity of opinion and life experience and, uh, you know, not diversity of, of race and gender. So to paraphrase Forrest Gump, it would be what we do in our deeds rather than what we what we look like. Well, it's more about who you are as an individual. It should be more about who you are as an individual, not sort of this kind of surface-level box that you can put somebody into. And ironically, you know, diversity often means, um, you know, stereotyping people and putting them into a box rather than actually allowing the diversity of the individual to flourish. Yeah. Uh, So if an employer has a diversity recruiting practice... What does this mean for those people who are applying for positions? Well, typically uh, a diversity recruiting practice would mean that they want to hire people of a specified or certain background. And again, you know, it's divisive. It undermines um, equality of opportunity and the idea of, you know, meritocracy, meritocracy, like the idea of you are employed on your ability uh, and to give everybody a fair go. Um, you know, we all want those people who are less fortunate to get a leg up, but diversity hiring actually means that they're hiring based on subjective characteristics of a person rather than a person's capacity to actually, you know, make a, a contribution and do the task required. So the idea of merit has gone? Yes, definitely. It, well, in this scenario where... Um, you know, the, the priority of hiring is um, a, a subjective characteristic. You know, merit actually gets, you know, further, pushed further back down the line. Okay, so um, how can a candidate um, get over this? I mean, do they fudge their diversity credentials? Uh, is that what's starting to happen? Well, I can't speak to what people might be doing to overcome some of those prejudices but uh, it it is definitely an issue that if uh, you know if an organization is recruiting uh, with specific subjective characteristics as their high priority and you don't possess those but you happen to be a a candidate uh, who is the most capable I'm not quite sure how you're actually going to you know, get through that brick wall that's there first. But because we are losing, uh, and in some situations perhaps have lost uh, the priority of merit. In the New South Wales Department of Education, the person who wrote the behaviour policy for the um, inclusive engaging education Uh, doctrine had never ever been in front of a classroom so I would imagine diversity employment was a part of that person's engagement would that be right well I I, you know I can't speak to any particular individual but um, definitely there there are a lot of complaints around particularly within the education department that those who are writing the policies have never been inside a classroom they don't know anything about uh, delivering a curriculum they've never managed a classroom some of the policies, uh, there's a recent report that's come out just last week about the level of um, disruption and violence in classrooms. Uh, it was a report released in New South Wales uh, and how often you're allowed to suspend a, a student. I think it was three times a year or something. I mean, these are sort Correct. of just, you know, random uh, benchmarks without knowing any of the detail of what it's actually like to manage a classroom of 25 kids. And if you've got a couple of kids in there who are persistently unruly, 
you know, you've got bureaucrats putting copious amounts of documentation together who really have no real life experience of the role itself. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the statistics: forty nine percent of all principals have been physically abused. There's some horrific stats that are coming out about the level of violence and disruption, and the OECD uh, results have shown that Australian schools are some of the most disruptive in the OECD world. So we came in 70th Mm. out of 77 countries for Mm. classroom cultural environment and disruption. So, you know, we've we've got a pretty serious problem that needs to be addressed. Most certainly. I mean, when Turkey and Brazil and Argentina are well above us as far as classroom... um, safety goes we've got a real real problem well there wouldn't be many uh work environments where an employee would be um exposed to those work conditions so we have to back the teachers and give them the the tools and the framework to do something about this you can't have a situation where uh you know half of your workforce is being physically or verbally abused it wouldn't be tolerated in any other workplace no Exactly right. It's an occupational health and safety issue. Mm. Um, And you think that there would be some legal uh, comeback. Well, unfortunately, I think the the result is that a lot of people, a lot of teachers are, um, you know, raising their hands and saying, I just don't want to do it anymore. Uh, Our education system is in an absolute crisis situation. Teachers are overrun with Uh, paperwork and compliance um, overrun with dealing with, you know, disruptive students and documentation, um, you know, complaining parents, very little of their time uh, and uh, of their time is sort of devoted to the actual task of teaching and being allowed to actually teach. So, you know, way too many of our teachers are just saying, this is just not what I want to be doing anymore. Yeah. Now, now, if we bring that back and we say, well, okay, the policies are made in government departments and we, we used education there um, by individuals who have no skin in the game, that they haven't been, haven't got any experience, but they're based, but they're employed on perhaps um, a diversity, uh, that they fit a certain other criteria other than merit. What do you say to those who preach that um, the the staff, employees of an organisation, whether it be a company or a government department, should reflect uh, either the customers or the people that they actually serve? Uh, For example, if you've got 2% of Indians in your population in the council, you should employ 2% of Indians. What do you say to that? Well... Um, you know, it's another example of, you know, diversity that actually divides us. I don't know how you could ever have a situation where you can uh, formulate that any organisation is a, is a um, percentage-wise reflection of the community. And, and where do you stop? You know, it, it's, a, it's actually a measure for um, excluding some people and dividing the community rather than equal opportunity. It's, you know, it ought not to be... A scenario where we have uh, where we are forcing um, equal outcomes, and that's part of the challenge with this stuff is that we all want to give those people who need a leg up some assistance, but that doesn't mean that we we exclude people um, of merit. You know the the whole issue of meritocracy. So diversity has the great um, danger consistently of excluding people and demanding 
a an equal outcome rather than equal opportunity. So when you've you know what you've identified is the, the you know the logical end point of the diversity you know doctrine that we're um, all concepts of an individual person are ignored in favour of a group box that a person happens to fit within. Yes, and um, I'm told by my gay friends that they have never ever felt excluded on the basis of their sexual orientation. And look, as a matter of fact, um, some have said that being gay is a foot in the door in some companies or government departments. Isn't this the exact opposite of diversity? Well, I can't speak to the experience of, um, you know, to those sorts of experiences, but what you've suggested points to the bigger challenge is that as a society, we risk um, judging people solely on very superficial characteristics rather than their, you know, their innate qualities as a human being. So people need to be seen through the prism, you know, sort of seeing people through the prism of their um, boxed identity is, is dehumanising. People are sort of complex and multifaceted um, and we shouldn't be reducing them to a label that sits above their head, whether they're, you know, gay, trans, uh, religious, female, whatever whatever label you want to put on people. That's just, uh, that is dehumanising people. But according to some some people I've spoken to, that their identity gives them a foot in the door when it comes to employment. Well, to your earlier point about, um, you know, organisations having diversity recruiting um, practices, that may well be the case, that, um, you know, that there may be... Uh, priority given to certain diverse you know labels but but the ultimate problem with that is that we are dehumanizing people we're, we're sort of putting labels on people and we're and the, the idea of recruiting to a label ultimately means that you're not really being diverse at all you're, you're demanding a particular outcome rather than giving um, equal opportunity it, you know, so it, it's not an equal opportunity. For, it's not an equal playing field. Um, you, you know, you're sort of handpicking a, a few labels that you want. And, and in doing so, you are definitionally excluding uh, the real opportunity for diversity. The Filtered Podcast can be heard on most streaming services or the Substack platform. It only costs $30 per year Australian to subscribe to both the podcast and the magazine. That's just $20 US. To subscribe, just search for Filtered on Substack. It's, it, it comes down to that we're, we're a TikTok generation, um, TikTok world, whereas what you see in six seconds is who you are, and that, that's not the case, of course. Well, um, I don't know about you, but everyone I know are pretty complex people. <laughs> so, Indeed. You know, we, we, are, we are not just one label. We are not just. I'm not just a female, you know. I, I'm I'm a mum. I'm a you know a professional. I I play sport. You know what I mean? You have everybody has layers and facets to who they are, and uh, yes. and to just give a person one characteristic and to say that we are going to uh, employ and uh, demand of, um, outcomes and stuff according to one label is very problematic. Yes, I would agree with you. And, and coming back to merit, and you've got to have the best person uh, for the job. But it seems that our government departments and many businesses are now um, 
their recruitment is controlled by people with a diversity focus, that they have certain qualities that they want. Now, um, what can be done about that? Because this, this means that there's certain people who are dominating. Now, I'll give you an example, Colleen. The BBC in, in England have recently dumped their diversity um, policies because the LGBTIQ community was being employed at a greater rate than people who weren't in that community. And so they've dumped all um, uh, liaison with them. They've dumped their um, their partnership with Stonewall because the public that they were serving was seeing that this was really out of balance. So how is it is it time for Australian companies to do something similar? I do think that most of these issues come out of an original good intention. You know, I don't think there are very, very many people who set out to, um, you know, deconstruct everything that we're doing and reconstruct it in a way that's objectionable. So, you know, let, let me sort of just put that comment in and then set it aside. Yeah. Uh, that in most of these situations, we've lost focus about what the point of all of this is. And the only way that uh, we can change things is as a, as a community, as, as people, is to speak is to be heard and to say, uh, you know, this is not actually what we want. Now, you know, there are organisations where it's an easy way to do that. You know, you stop shopping at a place, you write them a letter, you write to your MP, you talk to your friends. I mean, you know, we do still live in a democracy where, um, you know, we do have a voice and we can use our voice to often to, um, you know, to great change and, and to... Uh, you know, great um, impact. So the idea that, you know, we sort of sit back and take it, uh, that's not, you know, that's not the case. We can actually speak up and do do something about these things. So it, it doesn't change overnight. None of these things have come in overnight. But, uh, you know, but we can actually be sort of a bit activist in our view about them. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll um, make a point of agreeing with you that the entire idea of inclusion and diversity and all of that was basically great, but it seems the radicals, the extremists, have taken over that those words um, and made them into something different. But yes, I agree that basically um, it, was, it was all good intentioned. But you said to be an activist and to get our voice heard, but mainstream media doesn't seem to want to listen to anything that differs. Well, unfortunately, I think um, our media class, uh, there isn't the depth of journalism that there, you know, there has been in the past. We've sort of turned into a society that's interested in clickbait and six-second reads. Uh, you know, so it's it's a, a lot of sensationalism and uh, alarmism and all of those isms, you know, that we mm. that are constantly around us. And so there isn't necessarily a, a great level of um, conversation about some of these things. And the media class uh, are driven by you know getting click throughs. So that is very much part of the problem. Even the ABC seems driven by that lately. Well, uh, the ABC seems to have a very particular perspective of the world uh, without, um, with, you know, shamelessly some of the times. 
Mm. Um, you know, their perspective of how they present information um, and, uh, like, for example, the stuff, you know, in Alice Springs and their reporting of, of some incidences is particularly biased. I rung the ABC. This would be about a year and a half ago. They were talking about domestic violence and child abuse in Australia. And I rung and said, look, we, we have to divide it up between some of the the the, the um, rural outback communities because that's where um, the problems really are the greatest and we should have programs in those communities. And the producer said that was being racist and I couldn't separate Australians. Yeah. Yep. I thought, well, how on earth are we going to fix this problem if we can't target um, communities, separate communities with separate programs? It's completely ridiculous. Well, the, the trouble is that words like racist have taken on a whole different perspective of their own. Just to mention skin colour, for example, is now considered racist. Uh, and it, it isn't. I mean, there's an attitude that an underlying attitude of something can, of course, be racist. But just to segregate or to identify a problem, um, in, you know, in a particular area where most people have, for example, blonde hair and blue eyes is not racist. It's an analysis of data. Yeah. And we have to be able to be, um, you know, literally more mature and sophisticated in our approach of actually being able to analyse and discuss solutions for these things. Otherwise, it becomes a blanket um, comment about, uh, you know, an entire country that is... And so you you miss the opportunity to help find solutions. It's very anti-fact. You know, it's it's completely dismissing truth that, that... um, you know, sexual violence against children in, in outback rural communities is, is worse. Now, <laughs> if they're not going to uh, agree to that and or admit that that is correct data, well, there's something well, very wrong. And, and this is part of the, the challenge with um, there's a whole sort of what I call the woke cloak that goes over a lot of um, businesses, uh, education, uh, media that... We talk about feelings rather than facts, and feelings trump facts. So whether I've hurt someone's feelings by, you know, making a comment or making an observation about a particular geographic area or whatever, I might hurt someone's feelings. But without actually being able to talk about the facts and recognise that they're facts, uh, we actually get nowhere. So, and that problem exists, like I said, it's the what, what I call the work clock. It goes over everything. And um, analysing facts has become a, a secondary or even, you know, third-tier issue that is pushed down the, down the line well behind, um, you know, sentimentality and, uh, and feelings, which is it, it just means that ultimately we are not addressing problems properly. And and this gets back to diversity where perhaps people are being employed on feelings, not on the actual facts of what they have done historically. Yeah, and so you have a situation where, um, you know, of course it would be nice to have, you know, this scenario where we can say, well, we, we have representation of all these different types of people in our society. Um, but it actually doesn't mean that you actually have people with the, the required skill set um, and that you're, or, or that you, you know, you're giving the leg up to people who who 
you know, really need it, for example. Uh, you know, you sort of, you end up in this formulated scenario of people with labels on the top of their head and you're just ticking boxes. The Filtered Podcast and Magazine are fully funded by subscriptions and donations. For $30 a year or $5 per month, you get all written pieces and podcasts from the Filtered Substack. Just click on the subscribe or donate boxes to keep reading or listening to the difficult yet important views about society on the brink. And for look for the listeners um, in other parts of the world, or this is coming from Australia, but this this um, woke cloak disease that you talk about is worldwide in Western society, isn't it? It's all over the place. Uh, I, I'm pleased to say that there is pushback. Um, that we're starting to see, particularly in the UK and in America, and particularly in the school systems as well. So uh, I think part of the challenge is that those of us who are, um, if I if I can use the word conservative, middle of the road people, uh, generally people who are, are, are accepting of other people's lives, and you know, I'll you live your life and I'll live mine, and that's okay. Uh, but there's a recognition that some of those um, individual rights have been overridden, and that the um, you know the hard left view of the world is not allowing actually diversity of thought. Um, so kids at school are taught what to think, not how to think, and there's a lot of sort of pushback to say, "Whoa, this has all gone too far." Uh, it's one thing to to sort of accept change in community and be. Uh, mm. mindful that I live my life and you live yours and that we might have very different views of the world and, and very different values but there are some core principles that we have to agree that that I I have a right to my to my child being taught how to think not what to think and and there is very much a pushback across the world that that is a movement that's starting to say yeah um, you know I don't want the state I don't want the government yeah telling my child all of that stuff and I and I don't want to be in a situation where uh, the media is feeding me stuff without actually giving me uh, you know the other side of the story to consider and make up my own mind uh, and I'll give you just a small example if I could uh, with the the voice to parliament legislation coming up uh, the school system the government is distributing uh, and the unions only the yes side of the vote you know, everybody needs to be able to consider both sides and make up their own mind. And so there is this pushback to say um, people need to be able to make their own choices. And and in order to be able to make a choice, you need to be informed and have all all parts of any particular argument. Look, it most certainly, but the... Uh... The government is supposed to be funding both sides equally. I'm, I'm not sure whether that's been done. Uh, look, I know initially they weren't going to fund anything, but uh, there was um, a commitment to fund both sides. But what I've heard is that the teachers' union, are, have, well, they have made a statement that they're supporting the yes. Now, even in that, I mean, the union doesn't and ought not to be able to speak for every single teacher. That, that that should not be a situation where they can tell the world how me as a teacher thinks. No, no, that's that's exactly right. But um, individuals 
Um, some, I believe, are scared to actually say what they actually think because, as you mentioned before, you'll be labelled a racist and you actually, you know, it's actually dividing society and I'm very concerned about what the outcome could be. Uh, it's a very common thing that I hear, particularly in the role that I have here at the IPA. I, I get loads of emails from parents and grandparents saying, thank you, you know, so glad that somebody's bringing, you know, a, a shining a light on some of these issues because I can't do it. I can't say that out loud. So we have a, a situation in community where people are genuinely uh, concerned and too afraid to say what they think for fear of being labelled. Hmm. particularly a racist or a bigot or a homophobe or any kind of phobe that you want, uh, and it just shuts down the conversation. It's a very easy way to stop people from speaking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a friend of mine uh, is a school principal, and um, he's disgusted in this uh, gender dysphoria stuff that's happening with kids in schools, but he said that if a child is wanting to identify as a different sex uh, and the parents are... Uh, say no they're not going to support that then the principal has to report them to uh, child justice now that's pretty incredible stuff there's a thing called there's legislation called mature minor and uh and that's that's where this um parameters come into play that the school can decide that on a particular issue that they can decide that the child is mature enough to make their own decisions and if they deem that the school has the legal authority to uh, continue down a particular path concerning that child that the parents may disagree with it's it's very significant uh, legislation that all parents should understand and uh, be very aware of uh, you know the potential ramifications of that. Yeah. So yes, you're, if you're in a situation where you don't agree with um, a, a pathway that your child might want to be taking, and your child is say 14 years old, the school does have the legal right to determine that child a, a mature minor and cut you out of the process. And uh, in doing so, if you become a problem in being cut out of that process, as most parents would uh, be very concerned about, they then have that process that legally uh, open to them of reporting you to um, authorities and, you know, there's, there's a whole consequence pathway after yes. that. As if that 14-year-old actually knows what they want to do for the rest of their life and it's like any adolescent, we're all, we're all confused um, and perhaps parents have just got to say no. Well, yeah, and, you know, the average teenager, it, yeah, well, I, I think uh, without being um, unkind to teenagers, I always think of them as their job is to push the boundaries. Hmm. You know, it's it's part of the process of growing up is to push boundaries and, and hopefully there are walls around to stop you going too far because, hmm. uh, you know, they're, they're sort of like the safekeeping of teenagers. But it is their job to you know, push around and work out who they are as a person and how they operate and what they think. And, and uh, you know, some of that can be really challenging stuff. But, you know, the idea of supporting them and allowing them to do whatever they want to do are two different things. Yeah. Yes, it's the role of the parent then to establish um, firm but fair boundaries and ensure that the child understands those because society is full of boundaries we have laws 
Well, that's right. And and also to um, to enable a teenager to, you know, to go through the, uh, any process that doesn't necessarily have any long-term significant uh, residual damage, you know. And, and I, I don't mean in terms of yeah. any um, ideological or agenda. I, I mean even in terms of, um, you know, going out, mucking up with their friends, you know, any mistake. I mean, teenagers make mistakes. I mean, adults make mistakes too, but... You know, it's it's a very tricky time of their life and most people would look back on their teenage years and go, you know, I was lucky. You know, I made lots of mistakes during that time and, yeah. you know, if social media had been around when I was a teenager, you know, how many adults do you know have stories where they say, gee, I'm glad there wasn't a camera <laughs> or during all of my teenage years, that sort of thing. So, um, but, it, you know, that's a parent's job. No. And it's, in my view, it's not the government's job. That's that's the difference, is and it comes back to yeah, it's the parents' job, correct, yeah. and it comes back to who is actually responsible, who has the right to look after their own child, and who has the responsibility. It's not the education department's job. Now, look, finally, Colleen, it, when we vote for a politician or a party, they never, as far as I, if the elections, the last couple of elections, they never reveal their position on diversity, gender identity and everything that we've been discussing. Um, are we being actually lied to by omission? Are they just not talking about those important things which parents want to know about? Uh, and should politicians and parties make the stance on these things clear? It's an interesting question. Um, there are certainly some politicians who make their view, their personal views on a whole lot of ideology um, known and well-known. But... Um, I'd actually go an extra step and say that the government has no place in our personal lives. So I would take the extra step and say, I don't want government to be involved. I, you know, I want the small government and to be out of our lives as much as possible. So I, I don't mind what a person thinks and what kind of life they want to live. We're all entitled to live our best life within the boundaries of the law. Hmm. Um now, I know, you, you, you know, the obvious question is that is being, well, you know, who makes the law and what's the law about? But uh, there is that fundamental scenario that says if we could get government out of our lives and stop giving them more and more and more power, that would that's sort of my preference, you know, to, to go the opposite way and say, I don't want schools to have the right to, uh, you know, over my child. My child is my responsibility um, you know, stop giving other people um, currency over our own lives. Yes, I'm sure the people in New South Wales a couple of weeks ago did not vote for uh, gender-affirming treatment of children as young as nine, yet that is what's happening um, with puberty blockers and, and hormones. And, and, of course, we never hear about that. That was never mentioned by um, the winning party in the election. <laughs> Well, and that's where, uh, again, it's it's a case of um, having these conversations out in, out in the open and, you know, the, there are the pushback that is happening overseas where, it, it, you know, again, we, if we stay silent, um, there is no change. Silence is compliance, really. Science, silence is consent. I used to teach that very thing mm. at university. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So... You know, it doesn't matter what the issue is. If somebody has, uh, if there's something that you feel passionately about, the, the obligation is on the individual 
to speak up and to try and do something about it. And again, that comes back to, you know, we're not labels. We're individual people who have rights and responsibilities. And the big thing is the responsibility. You know, individual rights comes with responsibility. And that was Colleen Harkin from the Institute of Public Affairs. She's the National Manager for Class Action Programs and Research Fellow at the Institute. And you can find them on uh, ipa.org.au. ipa.org.au. Now, I did mention uh, in that interview that I used to teach uh, consent theory at, at university. And one of those... Um, theories involved was the spiral of silence. The spiral of silence theory was uh, proposed by a German political scientist, Elizabeth Noel Newman. Um, and it said that when when people didn't speak up, they didn't speak up because oh, they thought that everyone else would disagree with them. It funnels down uh, so that people are, are more and more silent. And when they're more and more silent, it's likely to bubble up as some sort of volcano of dissatisfaction. So nowadays, I think people are falling into that spiral of silence and they're not speaking up. Now, what could you do if you're facing um, a diversity platform in your workplace uh, that is really now become discriminatory? Because diversity employment on its own without merit is basically discriminatory. So what could you do? You could build um, a recruitment oversight committee or ask that one be formed. You could say no to mandatory diversity training in the workplace because that sort of training has now become rife in government departments and big corporations. Um, And you could also try and introduce a policy that says you can't discriminate in favour of gender, race, identity, age, etc., when it comes to employment. Because diversity really, um, as I mentioned, um, without merit, is discriminatory. And those who follow an extreme ideology hate to be called um, discriminatory or to be called out on discriminatory practice. My name's Phil Dye. You've been listening to Filtered, the podcast. Uh, Please remember that you can subscribe to the magazine and the podcast through Substack. Just go to Substack and search for Filtered, P-H-I-L-T-E-R-E-D. I'll see you again soon. 